Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network, a station dedicated to the concept that all manifestations of the divine are equally valid. Join Reverend Terry Power HP, Robin McKean, and all the hosts for programming covering a wide range of spiritual topics right here on Blog Talk Radio. Accomplish something worthwhile. 
In the early dawn of this new millennium, I partnered with individuals and organizations to stem the tide of the ever-growing digital divide in New York City. Our collective efforts led to a free computer drop-in center in downtown Brooklyn and an innovative intern-extern volunteer program called New Shores. Our adventures were chronicled through the e-radio show, Navigating the Digital Divide, a comment strip in Big News, a few cliffhanger tales on Sight's Journey, presentations at conferences, and an Age of Heroes special episode in the third season of my Fringe TV show. From 2005 to 2014, the focus was much narrower. I championed literacy, functional, vocational, cultural, informational, digital, multicultural, environmental, in rural northeastern Pennsylvania and northwestern New Jersey through my individual efforts in partnership with my wife, through our mythic 501C, um, and via coordinated cooperative endeavors with local individuals and organizations. Local media and our website chronicled those adventures. Now that our surgeons returned us to northeastern New Jersey and the greater New York metropolitan area, I'm inspired to dedicate myself to actualizing the ultimate dream, manifesting Elysium in the here and now. According to ancient tradition, Elysium is the highest heaven the human mind can conceive, and the Elysium project is the ultimate quest. How do I know I'm headed in the white direction? I know because I have a dream, a dream that sustains me. Our dreams are important. They guide us toward better tomorrows. Yet it is what we do now in the present moment that determines if our dreams will ever come true. Your being here tonight means that you are motivated to move forward in life and are determined to create a better future for yourself and your loved ones. I salute you. And now, let the adventure begin. What we do for a living helps define our place in the greater human community. The quest for one's purpose, one's calling, one's true vocation is often a lifelong pursuit. Each job, each volunteer experience, each action we take towards self-improvement and skill acquisition is a step forward in this never-ending journey of self-discovery and self-expression. Though it may often feel like you're alone during times of uncertainty and transition, it is important to realize that you are not. We are all on this quest together, whether we are self-employed, working full-time, part-time, or not at all. Perhaps we can assist each other on this life-changing adventure. You are hereby invited to join our fellowship by tuning in to the Elysium Project e-radio show my current quest is to align myself with opportunities that will help me establish myself in the context of my current community and grow my mythic mission, Mount Olympus. Aside from what I'm sharing here, uh, all of my shows can be said to support my quest, so please feel free to listen. It is my personal belief that our greatest assets arise from our uniqueness and that it is our responsibility to claim our own personal power, cultivate our own unique gifts, and dedicate them to the betterment of the world. Our actions arising from the words that you hear here will see this come to pass. 
Now, I'm Hercules, and like the Hercules of legend, I have a choice. And this choice is legendary. And it's often called the choice of Hercules, in fact. It's a tale that was preserved by Xenophon in Book 2 of his Memorabilia of Socrates, um, which you can read on the web for free. It greatly inspired the early Stoics, and it serves as one of my life's guiding myths. In summary, before the Theban Hercules started his mythic career, he took some time to contemplate his future course of action. While he thought things through, he was approached by two imposing female personages, Areti and Kakia. Kakia promised him an easy path, filled with life's greatest distractions, but devoid of all sense of personal responsibility or social conscience. Areti promised a path full of uncertainty and hardship. She offered him a difficult future that fully embraced personal and social responsibility and demanded unceasing action, even when no reward was promised and no relief was in sight. Though no doubt tempted by Kakia, Hercules knew that life's greatest attainments were reached by discovering, cultivating, and sharing one's unique gifts towards the betterment of all. He embraced his best destiny and freely chose the path of Arati. His many adventures immortalized him in human memory and earned him a place on Mount Olympus. Though Arati is usually translated as virtue, it actually means personal excellence. And though Kakia is said to have tempted Hercules as vice, she actually tried selling him the option of reaping under benefits through the exploitation of others. Though the choice of Hercules is told as a one-time event in Hercules' eventful life, in truth, we are always at a crossroads and always confronted with key choices that determine our destiny. In honor of Thebes' greatest hero, I resolved to choose my future courses of action as wisely as my deepest insights and highest perspective allow. I would forever strive for personal excellence by discovering, cultivating, and sharing my own unique gifts toward the betterment of all. And all of my guests tonight are doing the same. Um, we are going to be speaking very shortly with an individual who tackled the challenge of procrastination and wrote a wonderful book about his experiences. So he's sharing his experiences with others. And from there, we're gonna have a vocational forum that represents different perspectives. The perspective of private business people, labor organization, uh, chambers of commerce, uh, and uh, local government. So that's what we have in store for you ahead. Um, and now I will introduce our first guest tonight, David Parker. Greetings and welcome, David Parker. Hi, how Hi. are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me on the show, Hercules. Well, I'm very honored that you're here. You're an inspiring individual, and I enjoyed uh, meeting with you at uh, the recent New Life Expo in New York City, and we've had uh, many interactions since. So I'm impressed by uh, uh, what you have wrought, and uh, I would like to share that with our audiences tonight. That's great. That's what I'm here for. Thank you. Now, what made you decide to write a book about overcoming procrastination? Well, you know, um, all my life, Prior to writing the book, I suffered from uh, serious depression. I suffered from low moods, low self-esteem, 
uh, hopelessness and uh, and to some degree helplessness. And uh, it was only uh, at a certain point when I was uh, I had reached a point in my life where I was living in London and I was uh, divorcing my then wife. And I was going through a very bad uh, bout with depression, and I uh, slowly uh, it came to me uh, uh, that my uh, lifelong habit of procrastination was uh, making my uh, depressed feelings even worse. Uh, shall I uh, tell you how that uh, all came about? Sure. Thank you for thank you for being so generous uh, with your life experiences. Uh, uh, you're sharing what must have been very rough periods in your life, and uh, you learned from them. And now you're sharing what you learned with others. I salute you. Thank you very much. I appreciate you saying that. You know, depression was just really the way life was, uh, especially also in the household uh, that I uh, grew up uh, in. Both both of my parents uh, suffered with depression uh, themselves as well um so uh, unfortunately uh that's the way uh, life uh, uh was it was during that time in london that i recalled the advice that a uh, friend uh, had once given me he said if i ever felt really really low i uh, and my thoughts were uh, a bit out of control i should write them down in a, in a notebook and that no matter how uh, low my thoughts or how bad my thoughts were, to write them down. And I took to I took to writing them down, and I found that it did help me uh, at least feel a, a slightly uh, slightly calmer as a result. So I started carrying that notebook with me everywhere I went, and I would write down my thoughts constantly. And eventually, I started using the margins of the notebook to write little reminders or to-do lists to myself. Mm-hmm. And uh, as time progressed and the uh, uh, the uh, notebook got bigger, I would start to uh, look back on its pages. Let's say, for example, today is Wednesday, so I might flip back the pages to last Wednesday and see, um, see what I wrote that day. And then I'd suddenly notice... Uh, one of those reminders, one of those to-do reminders, you know, like pay a bill or uh, take buy, buy purchase something at, by a certain time to take advantage mm-hmm. of a sale or something, and uh, and I would see this undone uh, reminder, and I'd say, well, why didn't I take care of that? I would I would get angry with myself, and why did I procrastinate on another lost opportunity? But uh, did I take care? of uh did I pay that bill or did I take care of that thing the second time I saw it or the third time or or four for more no I would get angry but I would feel paralyzed I I I just didn't know how to take action I would just get caught up in the emotion and so one day it just occurred to me after this had happened time after you know uh time I said you know what is it with procrastination it it has me by the throat I, I need to learn to overcome my procrastination. And uh, I slowly uh, uh, taught myself, it took a long time, but I taught myself a method, I call it the JOT method, J-O-T, meaning just uh-huh. one task. I had to teach myself, you know, if you're a very bad procrastinator, the way that I was, you put off so many things that whenever you have any 
free time to deal with them, you get so overwhelmed. You say, I, I, I don't know what to deal with first. So you, you just naturally feel like, well, you know, I'm just going to put the TV on for a few minutes. Uh, I'll get to it. And, um, of course, that's, uh, that's, that's procrastination itself. So uh, I, by, by learning to jot, J-O-T, just one task down and deal with it, uh, to immediately deal with it, it's such a simple method, but yet it works so perfectly well for me and, and many other people that, that have uh, discovered my book. Is it, would it be all right if uh, I mentioned sure. the title of my book? Oh, of course. Uh, yes, this is uh, your interview. Uh, share uh, with everybody. Oh, well, thank it's you. Yeah, the, book. Yeah, the, name, the name of my book is The More You Do, The Better You Feel, How to Overcome Procrastination, and Live a Happier Life. You can just look it up on the Internet by just typing in The More You Do, The Better You Feel. I'm David Parker. And if anybody's interested in finding out more about my book, I'll just mention that my website is davidparkerauthor.com that's davidparker a-u-t-h-o-r dot com and you're also on uh, Facebook and for those who are following on Facebook uh, all of David's information is there uh, including uh, uh, Amazon uh, his website, his Facebook page um, and uh, so you can access him uh, through there as well and as we end today's segment uh, I'll be asking David for his information again so if you missed it you will be able to catch it by the end of this uh, segment that is quite a lot to say and it says that all oh, the more you do the better you feel how to overcome procrastination live a um, happier life uh, what do you tell people who uh, think that uh, people who procrastinate are just uh, being lazy you know, I, I get that I get that question uh, quite a lot, and and you know there is a difference between laziness and procrastination because people who are lazy, you know, people who people who admit to themselves that they're lazy, first of all, they don't really beat up on themselves. They kind of laugh it off. They say, "Yeah, I'm lazy. That's the way I am." But the thing is, is that they still get the the item done, the task done. Whereas people who procrastinate very often are down on themselves, and they say, I procrastinate, and the only thing that gets me to get it done is a deadline or a threat. You know, Hercules, my definition, and everybody's definition of procrastination is a little bit different, but my personal definition of procrastination is when you know that by not doing something, you're going to to uh, suffer consequences, and yet you still procrastinate. You still put it off. The 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 thought of consequences uh, worries you. It bothers you, but it's just not enough motivation to take care of uh, the item um, on time or ahead of time. That, to me, is real procrastination. That's when procrastination is really bad. And that's why you refer to procrastinators as human ostriches, I'm imagining. That's they stick right. Their heads in the sand? They stick their heads in the sand. That's right. Of course, you know, it's funny. Uh, the, the fable of the ostrich is just that. It's a fable. Those birds uh-huh. in Africa never really did stick their heads in the sand out of fear of fear of people they were actually uh, foraging uh, for for pebbles they would swallow pebbles because it helped them 
digestive food. Yes. But uh, people who saw them thought that they uh, were uh, uh, reacting to fear. And little kids do do that. Uh, little kids uh, often believe that by closing their eyes, you know, whatever is disturbing them goes away because uh, it's no longer visible. So I guess that's how the idea that uh, that's what ostriches were doing uh, entered in the minds of the people who described them so. It seems that way, doesn't it? Uh, yes, it does. Now, uh, I um, am one of these people that, that I can't stop doing things. <laughs> so uh, that is not something, although I do occasionally procrastinate um, on some things that I prefer not to uh, do, uh, procrastination isn't one of my uh, you know, big uh, focuses. But I know many people who uh, are, as you say, you know, they, they let things go and then they freeze up. Uh, and they don't know what to do. So your method, I'm sure, uh, would be very helpful to them. And it's very simple for me to describe. And uh, you're also honestly stating that it's not a magic pill, that this is something they're going to have to work on and just do a step at a time. So I, I, I congratulate you for that as well. That's uh, a remarkable piece of honesty, too, that you know things don't happen automatically. You know, I'd like to point out, to just to expand on that for just a moment, uh, sometimes one of the things that happens with procrastinators is we put off so many different things that uh, whenever we have uh, free time to uh, to deal with them, what we might do is we'll start work on one project, and then we start second-guessing ourselves, and we say, wait, 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 how can I be doing uh, this when I, I, I really should be doing this other thing? And so we switch after 15 minutes of of work. We don't complete the task instead we then switch to another task, and then 15 minutes later, we question ourselves and say, you know, I shouldn't really be working on this. I, I, I should have been working on this other thing. And then we switch to a third task. And then uh, we start to question ourselves because now we have two incomplete tasks and we're working on the third, and our minds are just where, in other words, we have a very difficult time focusing. We're very distractible mm -hmm. and we we have a very hard time staying. I'm, I'm imagining that there are some people who are listening to this right now and they're nodding their heads and they're going, yep, that's me, or yep, that's my husband, or yep, that's my girlfriend, or, you know, that's how, that's, and that's why I made my, a lot of, there are a lot of books out there on procrastination, but most of, most all of them have been written for busy people who want to do more. My book is the exact opposite. It's for people who just can't seem to find their start button. And you had mentioned that uh, um, procrastinators put off until they're overwhelmed by the things they've put off. What are some of the things that uh, distract them and put them off track uh, so that uh, they can recognize these distractions before they derail them? Well, in today's world, there are so many distractions because... You know, we not only have TV, but we have, you know, we have cable TV. We even have yes. we even have TV channels on on our computers now. Uh, we have uh, video games. Uh, we have, you know, uh, cell phones that have, you know, more computer power than the the computers that guided uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin to the moon in 1969. Uh, we have uh, so many, many distractions uh, uh, today. Uh, it's just, uh, it's just endless. 
Uh, the list goes on and on and on. So it is very easy to, um, you know, I mean, it's it's been, what, uh, maybe uh, 30 years since, uh, um, almost 30 years since the, the term uh, surfing the Internet uh, came about, which means what? It just means like just it comes from channel surfing, from TV, just flipping the remote and going from one one show to the next to the next to the next you know it's just so easy to get lost in in um, video games or or you know all kinds of stuff so uh now more than ever it's uh it's it's very easy to procrastinate and you write in your book about how uh procrastinators uh um often complain that they wait till they feel like uh, doing something or dealing uh, with something and that they're writing for the right time. I think everybody could identify with uh, uh, those uh, um, thoughts and uh, feelings and that everybody does it to some extent. Now, why is that a trait that is especially strong in people who procrastinate? Because, uh, well, the, the reason for that is because when a person waits for the right time before they do something, the, the the biggest the biggest difficulty is when the right time never comes, and so the project never gets acted upon. So the thing is, you can't wait till it's the right time to start doing something. Instead, you have to uh, force yourself sometimes to a lot of the time uh, just getting started. Is the most important thing. Uh, procrastinators are also uh, perfectionists. Not all, not all procrastinators are per- perfectionists, but many are. And so we say we say to ourselves, if I'm going to do something, um, I'm going to wait until I feel like doing it because then I'll do a better job. But if we never feel like doing it, we'll never get around uh, to taking care of it. Uh, we also have to drop the uh, perfectionistic uh, angle. We have to uh, just say uh, it's better to get started, and then once we get started, then we'll we'll you know work on it and whatever the task is, and we'll do it to our to our best uh, ability. Uh, instead, uh, procrastinators like to predict things, like predicting uh, uh, when it will be best to to work on it, and again that. Time never comes, so it's a. No, it doesn't. It's a very complicated issue. It's, it's yes, people yes. laugh about procrastination, but it's actually, it's very very uh, complex, and it's a. I think it's as bad a habit as, uh, in some ways, as cigarette smoking. Perhaps a procrastination doesn't give you cancer, but on the other hand, it could stop you from going to the doctor and getting a necessary test done. So uh, it can affect your health. Procrastination is a very difficult thing to beat, and that's why I. I wrote the book because I found that my jot method really helped me and I, I felt like helping others. And that that is very noble, and I'm sure that it will help others. Uh, one of the books that uh, I had read uh, many years ago, Tom Hartman wrote, and he described the functioning of my brain so well that I actually used it as a manual, uh, and I was able to more effectively use my brain after that. Uh, I forget what the title of the book uh, was. I think it was A Different Perspective, but it was the uh, Hunter in a Farmer's World uh, book about attention deficit disorder. 
Right. And uh, it taught me how to see how I functioned in a more positive way. Um, like, for instance, my, my thinking is very primitive, and it's common t- uh, to people who hunt or who live in hunting-gathering societies. So basically, my mind scans the environment constantly. And if I'm tracking something, let's say, like a rabbit, a hunter would track a rabbit, right. and then the deer crosses my path, I'm going to forget about the rabbit and go after the deer because that's better game. Mm-hmm. And to people who don't understand that, that looks uh, indeci- you know, indecisive or I can't right. stick with something and finish it. Um, right. And another example is if leaves, you know, like envelopes or letters aren't doing anything threatening, I tend to ignore them. Uh, but if they start doing threatening things, then I'll pay attention to them. And uh, um, this seemed like uh, delaying. But when I understood that it was like hunting behavior, I was able to uh, use that model to harness how my brain was a lot better. And then a lot of the problems that were associated with uh, thinking this way in our society all of a sudden no longer became as uh, problematic because I I understood how my brain was working. So I'm imagining uh, people reading your book and uh, seeing themselves in there and in giving them power uh, beyond even the job method to take control of their life and their circumstances. And that is a great uh, gift. And uh, I'm sure it'll change many lives. Thank you. I hope it does. Now, you you showed how the perfectionism aspect makes it difficult for a uh, procrastinator to meet their own uh, standards. Uh, and you shared that they have a problem with focus, as I thought I did when I had attention deficit disorder. Can you explain the focus aspect a little bit more? Sure. Yeah, people people who... who um, uh, like I said uh, earlier, uh, when people procrastinate, uh, very often uh, their ability to to focus uh, is is a bit uh, hampered because they're so used to uh, diverting their attention away from uh, the tasks that they need to uh, they really need to tackle uh, that uh, they almost uh, uh, develop. Uh, an evasive form of, of focusing, which means that they will constantly be turning their mind away from uh, the task at hand. So uh, uh, this makes it, you know, the more that, uh, you know, a lot of people, by the way, have um, told me that they bought my book because uh, they or, or, or a friend or loved one suffered from ADD, attention deficit uh-huh. disorder. You know, I'm, I'm not a doctor. I want to make it, you know, absolutely uh, clear that I wrote my uh, book as uh, from a lame person's uh, perspective, from my own perspective. Uh, uh, this method, uh, the job method, uh, worked for me, and I hope it works for others. Now, uh, being that I'm not a doctor, I can't make promises. I can't make promises right. that that even I can't even promise that the book is going to help with procrastination. I think that if you read it and you practice its uh, methods, uh, the job method and some other methods in it uh, and within its pages, I think that it will help uh, someone who seriously uh, uses the book. But uh, a lot of people have uh, reported to me that uh, the, the, uh, the, the method has, uh, has helped with uh, attention uh, deficit disorder. 
and uh, you know that that has uh, some roots in focusing. So again, the the jaunt method, which you know, for those people who a lot of people may hear that uh, they may have heard it several times now, and said, well, what what exactly is it? If I could just say for a moment, uh, the uh, the jaunt method means you jot J O T you jot down a single task, a simple task, and then you do it. And when, so when you jot it down, you, you, you then act upon it. Let's say you jot it down, uh, you, have, uh, you have an envelope that's sitting on the table that really needs to be in its uh, proper place, uh, filing cabinet. So you jot down, you know, put envelope in filing cabinet, and then you do it. You do not make a cup of coffee after writing it down. You do not make a telephone call to your Aunt Tilly in Toledo. You take care of it. You you put you put the envelope in in the proper place in the filing cabinet, and then you go back to that list, the jot list, and you you put a thin line, a very thin pencil line through it, to 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 acknowledge that you did it and to give yourself mental credit. For example, I might say, yes, David, good, you did it, fantastic. That's what you needed to do, and you did it. And so you build confidence slowly. You build confidence. It's a very, very simple task. You might say it's a simple task for complicated people. That's a very good way of uh, putting it. Um, I looked at the clock, and uh, we're winding down our segment, uh, but I'm definitely going to have you back for part two so that we can continue this uh, exploration of uh, uh, your wonderful book and how you developed it. Um, The name of the book is... The, the more, more you, you do, the better you feel. How to Overcome Procrastination and Live a Happier Life. It is available on Amazon. Is there any other way that people can get the book? Yes, if people go to uh, my website, davidparkerauthor.com. That's davidparkerauthor, A-U-T-H-O-R.com. Uh, if you're in the uh, U.S., uh, you can order a copy of uh, by mail order, well, anybody around the world can order one um, from my website. If you order from my website, you get a personally autographed copy. Awesome. Uh, shipping shipping is free in the United States uh, for for as many copies as you want. And uh, if you want the ebook, the ebook is available on Amazon. And if you just prefer shopping through Amazon, you can uh, get the paperback on Amazon as well. And you also do uh, expos. Uh, I met you there uh, two years in a row. And uh, you'll soon be speaking at our career center at the Cresco Public Library in June. Do you make any other appearances uh, here in the greater New York metropolitan area? Well, I do other health expos wherever uh, whenever I find one. Uh, I am uh, going to be at the uh, the Earth Day Expo on uh, on April 21st in Midtown Manhattan. Uh, that's going to be coming up in a month, and uh, I also uh, I also do workshops. And for anybody who really needs uh, uh, help, I also do counseling, either in person or over the telephone, uh, for those people who need uh, help with their procrastination, who need a bit of extra extra help or extra encouragement, and uh, have very reasonable reasonable uh, rates. I try to help as many people as I can. 
and you've generously offered to give uh, callers from the show uh, 15 minutes of your time to start exploring uh, what their procrastination issues might uh, be. Uh, how would they take advantage of that offer? Uh, thanks for uh, mentioning that, uh, Hercules. Yeah, if anybody would like to uh, uh, get a free 15-minute uh, telephone consultation on their procrastination problems, uh, just email me. It's uh, my email address. It's info. That's i n f o at davidparkerauthor.com. So that's info at davidparkerauthor.com. Incredibly awesome. I want to thank you very much, David. I'm glad that we began this uh, journey uh, together, and I'm looking forward to part two, uh, which will be in April, and then we'll think of something uh, um, interesting to do in May, and then in June you're coming to speak uh, at the Career Center. So I'm looking forward to this adventure that uh, will continue, and uh, some of our other hosts have uh, shown interest in talking to you as well. So uh, I'm glad that we connected and that we will continue to uh, um, help people through our conversations. Terrific. Same here. Okay. Be well, my friend. Joyous journeys, and I will speak with you soon. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. And now we're going to listen to Dave the Bard's Merlin M.I., and then we'll be back with the second portion of our program. Thank you. 
And welcome back to the Elysium Project. Today's show, whose focus is vocation, is choices and labors, options and opportunities. And we'll soon be starting a vocational forum. Today's topic is the gig economy and its effect on individuals and small businesses. 
uh, I, Hercules Invictus, am your moderator, and our panelists will be Dan Uloa of the American Workforce Association, Mark Zinna, Councilman on Tenafly's Council, and Christine Dowler-Ebron, President of the Tenafly Chamber of Commerce. And some of our panelists have joined us. Uh, welcome. Who is with me? Mark Zinna is here. Hi, how are you? Hi, Good, Hercules. How are you doing? I'm doing phenomenally great, and I'm glad that you're here. And Dan just joined us, so welcome, Dan. Welcome, Dan. Hey, how are you? Okay, I'm how doing great. How you doing, great. Dan? This is Mark. Hey, nice to meet you. And Christine Likewise. is here, too. <laughs> um, Dan, uh, I guess we'll start with you. Um can you tell us a little bit about yourself beyond that you're a political writer and the founder and uh, director of the American Workforce Association? Uh, beyond that, yes. Yeah. So I'm, <laughs> so I guess that, that's me uh, professionally. You know, I've been um, variously in uh, politics uh, since uh, 2009. Uh, you know, I've been studying uh, these issues variously. Uh, you know, now I also like um, Lord of the Rings. You know, if you want to know me personally. Okay, awesome. I'm a big fan myself. <laughs> and um, uh, Mark, you are a businessman and a leader. Uh, you are a councilman on the Tenafly Council, and you are a mayoral candidate. Is there anything else you care to share about yourself? Well, right. That's correct. Thank you, Hercules, and thanks for uh, inviting me on the show again. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm a city councilman in Tenafly. I, I, I am running for mayor this year, so thank you for that plug there. And uh, I am a, I have a small business uh, located in Englewood, and uh, we manage data for law firms, and and our our, our employees are fundamentally uh, gig workers in the gig economy, if you will. Um, so it's uh, it's on topic for tonight. That's for sure. Uh, most certainly so. And I'm really gonna uh, I'm really looking forward to the different perspectives and uh, how the conversation develops, and all of us can expand our awareness. Uh, Christine, you're a businesswoman as well, a graduate of MIT, and the president of the Tenafly Chamber of Commerce. You're a Rotarian, and you're very many things. Is there anything else you care to share about yourself? Well, just that I started life as a chemical engineer, working in chemical plants, doing strategic planning in the energy sector. And I went from there into information technology and started fundraising as a volunteer and then went to helping small businesses as a volunteer. So I had a wide background. Yes, very wide. Uh, what do you call it? I, I'm very fortunate uh, to have met uh, awesome people that continue to impress me even after years. So you, you know you're one of those people, Christine. Um, now, tonight's topic is the gig economy, and I guess we'll start off by defining what is the gig economy uh, in your understanding. And we'll start with uh, Dan, since uh, you are um, giving talks about this, and you'll be giving one at our career center at the Cresco Public Library in a week or so. Yes, on April fourth. So the the gig economy is the newest change to the economy, whereby the latest trend is people really aren't working for the same company for twenty years the way they used to, 
20 years ago or so, or even 10 years ago, for example, it's become <clears throat> very much where people are working uh, for very short periods of time or they're working very independently uh, for employers. So in this system, you know, we have some people who are benefiting who are more akin to small businessmen, you know, similar to the way a lawyer or accountant might be in pri- private practice, a graphic designer, or high-end copywriter might seem to be like a small businessman. You know, that's a consultant. You know, they're able to set their own hours. You know, they have a great deal of freedom. But on the lower end, you have people who are Uber drivers, for example, who really aren't making it, who have to really um, pay a lot out of pocket for expenses. They're not really getting compensated properly. Uh, They don't really have enough benefits. You know, they might be an Uber driver. They might be doing a little tutoring on the side. And they're not benefiting from this new system where work is becoming divided up and sliced up so much. So that's really what we're trying to address um, uh, with my organization, AWA, is how to help these people who really understand that this economy isn't working for everyone. Thank you very much. Mark, you mentioned that uh, some of your employees are, are gig uh, workers. Uh, I would certainly classify myself as such, too. I'm doing a bunch of gigs here and there, and, and uh, uh, fortunately, lots of them are interesting. Um, how, what is your understanding of the gig economy or your perspective of, on the gig economy? So a couple of things. One, so the business I have now is more or less peak and valley business comes in, you know, there's a flow, there's an ebb in the flow. Sometimes we're really busy. Sometimes we're kind of slow and we hire individuals who want the flexibility of working for two or three months, taking a month off and then coming back a month later. And we manage through all that process. So in that sense, that aspect of it is positive for the employees who choose to do that. And that works for the company economically because uh, the cost of uh, keeping people around when we're not generating revenue drops to almost zero. So for the business, it works out nicely. For the employees who want to be gig workers and have that flexibility of time, um, that works out for them also. But I will make a comparison in that I've been in this particular business for about three and a half years now. And uh, prior Prior to that, way back in the old days, in the late 1990s, I had a business just like this that I sold. And um, the employees there were steady employees. They came in, worked from 9 to 5 or 4 p.m. to midnight. And uh, it was a much uh, more traditional sort of organization where people punched a clock. But in that organization, um, a couple of things were going on. The work of the company was more steady. So we had business coming in every day and the employees had health care benefits and a 401k program because of the steadiness of the job. Whereas, you know, fast forward 20 years later, the employees have the flexibility of their time, but they don't, there's no economic justification for, you know, they lose out on the 401ks and the health care plans and things of that nature because the financial structure is so different. So there are, pluses and minuses, um, you know, to, to, the, to the gig economy. And, to, and an excellent point that Dan made was about, you know, the Uber drivers. 
and you know this this whole idea that uh, folks are driving Ubers and it's a financial race to the bottom in terms of the companies cutting costs and and the drivers suffer from that and you know there's a real issue with that. Thank you very much, Mark. Uh, we've we've talked about this before, and you've really given me some deep uh, insights. Uh, so thank you. You're welcome. Christine. Well, I have to say, I was working in the gig economy, although I didn't call it that, as a consultant, an IT consultant, a strategic planning consultant, and I did really well. I But I was always terrified that I would have a slow time in August. August never came. And, in fact, it was quite the reverse. My vacation suffered. But it's a very stressful model. Um, and I'm fortunate. I was really well educated. I can command, I command a good salary. But not everybody can. And it's tough. Yes. Um, thank you. Now, I'm going to go into something that um, all of you brought up uh, uh, to some extent, uh, so it seems like a good uh, place to go next. What are the pros and cons, in your perspective, of the gig economy? Uh, Dan? <laughs> so the pros are the flexibility. That's the thing that's the main selling point for everybody, of course. Um, uh, you know, if you if you don't... You know, it's much better than working McDonald's or any similar jobs like that where it's very structured, uh, for example. Um, for, for in, if you're trying to get into a field, um, taking a few gigs here and there is a great way to build a portfolio, uh, for example, mm-hmm. that way. So in some fields, it's more common in that respect uh, versus others. So it, you can build credibility that way. Um, it is a great way, a great alternative if you're not accustomed to the traditional nine to five, which you know, it, in the worst case scenario, is very rigid. Uh, quite unfortunately, um, those, those are the main ones, I would say. Uh, okay. You know, the cons. Uh, the, <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm more focused on the cons here. There's no, you know, if you're a 1099 worker, you know, there's no. Uh, there's no benefits, there's no health care, there's no pension, there's no sick days, there's no vacation days, no personal time, no unemployment, no um, workers' compensation in the uh, worst-case uh, scenario as well. Um, as Christine mentioned, you know, there's a great uh, feeling of insecurity even when you're doing decently, quite unfortunately, at it. And you know, the health care issue is especially bad, you know, in today's society. You know, we have a lot of issues, you know, people getting sick. You know, I myself have a couple of chronic conditions. Nothing too serious, but I need a couple of pills for that. You know, if I didn't have insurance, you know, it makes it quite difficult. And, you know, insurance being what it is, you know, being a gig economy worker doesn't make it any easier. No, you're absolutely right. And our next question will be the, the whole uh, health issue. Uh, Mark? So you know, I, I agree with with, with Dan wholeheartedly. Um, you know, as as an employer, uh, the gig economy and the business I'm in right now works 
very much to my business's benefit. You know, and, and again, the biggest, the biggest benefit I see to the employees is their freedom of their time. And, you know, some people, uh, fair enough, would, would value that above everything else. And maybe they're, they're more interested in their time freedom and their, and their home life and their work balance than they are in making more money. And, and that's okay. Um, so, for, again, for our business, we, we have relationships with people where everything works out. We all want to be together. Um, but, again, the, the, there are, you know, serious long-term downsides, and, you know, things like unemployment, workers' comp, insurance. Uh, you know, can you get a mortgage if you want to buy, a, you know, a condo or a house, that sort of thing, and, and showing, you know, a stable sort of uh, work history, um, you know, so – so that being said, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of uncharted, you know. Even though we've been doing this for 10 or 15 years, that's really, you know, a short period of time that this has uh, th- this has been tested out. And you mentioned healthcare, you know, it, you know, I, I don't know all the details of the numbers, but I, I think approximately about one third of the American economy, the workers are how we would we would define them as gig workers. And you're right. What does that mean yeah, for the health about benefits? Much. But may I, right. That's that. Okay. Thank you. Uh, you know what does that mean for uh, healthcare? And you know it's a greater argument for a single payer system if a third of our workforce is without benefits. That's a real. That's a real issue. Thank you very much. Yes, it is, uh, Christine. I actually had two points. Um, okay. Which amazes me since I'm going third after each of these very thoughtful responses. But the first is free time is grossly overrated. There was a time when DuPont experimented with flex time. They were Mm -hmm. putting people on four days on, uh, three or four days off. And it was a a 10 or, I think it was a 10 hour day when they were doing it. And it had to be dropped. Most of the employees complained that they had too much free time. They didn't know what to do with it. Wow. Which I find very odd, but they had to drop this idea. Um, the other problem with the gig economy is you say, oh, it's better to be an Uber driver than McDonald's. But the McDonald's worker, the burger flipper, goes home at the end of his shift and his work is over. Um, if you're on the gig economy, your cell phone is always on and you always have to consider, am I going to take this drive? Am I going to drive over and pick up this um, item to be scanned? Um, your your work doesn't stop. And Very that's, good. That's a good uh, that, those are very good points. Uh, um, before we get to the uh, the health issue and the uh, insurance issue, does is this the new norm? Does anybody think that the old way of uh, uh, employment is ever coming back? Dan? So a lot of the experts are saying no, that it's only going to get worse this way uh and even in my best case scenario there is probably something to be said about the rigidity of the traditional corporation and working place workplace breaking up somewhat um and that's 
and that would be even like in the best case scenario of like strength and worker advocates and movements, you know, making it more stable, you know, which is not probably, which isn't really the way things are going um, right now. So unfortunately, no. Okay. Thank you very much, Mark. So what I say, again, I, I, I agree with uh, Dan. I don't think the gig economy is going away. Um, you know, that would be if, if to say it's going away would kind of be a, a little bit of a denial of, you know, technology in our world. I think what's going to happen is uh, the law, you know, state legislatures, uh, Congress are much, uh, you know, they're not as smart as the people who create technology and the people who are working in, in, in the private sector. Um, and, and I mean that in the sense of dealing with technology and how do the laws catch up um, with the technology that is changing our workplace? You know, for instance, uh, you know, there is a general sense that if, if you're uh, I'm going to, I'll pick on Uber and Lyft for a second. Uh, you know, okay. if you're a uh, Uber, uh, likes to think it doesn't have to follow, you know, the New York City or the San Francisco taxi and limousine regulations to protect drivers. And I think what we're going to see uh, as there's more gig workers, well, those gig workers are going to have to have protections also. Um, you know, if we have a third of the people in the country getting paid by 1099, I would venture a guess without an Excel spreadsheet in front of me, there's a lot of those people aren't saving up for their taxes, aren't putting it aside, and they're getting hammered come April 15th, and that becomes a tax collection problem. And as Dan mentioned, uh, you know, if, if they're working a certain number of hours per year, but it's six different jobs, they might not get unemployment. Well, maybe we have to start thinking of, well, what kind of safety net will those folks have because their jobs are just as valuable as someone working nine to five. So th- my, my sum of that, all that, is, is that the law, I believe, will catch up with the gig economy worker with more protections for those workers. It, it has to, because we can't use the gig economy as an excuse to do away with uh, all the work that's gone on protecting workers' rights over the past century. That is very true, and I'll share something personal. Uh, one of the places that... Uh, I was doing uh, gigs for an enhancement uh, company, enrichment company uh, uh, that does education. Um, They weren't being investigated, but the company that they were getting work for, because one company will uh, get a contract, they'll they'll, uh, parcel out to somebody else, they'll parcel out to somebody else. uh, And there's a lot of that going on. We've explored that aspect of it on on this show uh, before. Uh, so it wasn't who I got the gig from, but who they got the gig from that was being investigated. But in the process of the investigation, they investigated everybody, you know, everybody. So I had to, like, uh, show everything I've done since 2015 to the present in terms of my gigs. And uh, uh, that was a major um, hassle, but uh, it showed that the Department of Labor is taking an interest. And uh, when I was talking to them, they were saying that uh, a lot of people are being hired uh, as 1099 workers, but they're not really independent uh, 
um, contractors, uh, what they're doing is basically they have a job, but they become employees. They're, they're creating their own companies and so forth. So uh, I know that right now there's at least one major investigation going on. Uh, and they were saying that this way the employers avoid playing unemployment. And yeah, so um, those issues are very important and they are being looked at. So uh, in a way, it was a pain in the ass to have to answer all these questions and give all this information. Um, and fortunately, I have like websites and uh, uh, I have uh, newspaper articles and I have all sorts of other stuff to show you know, that I, this is what I've been doing uh, for years. Um, but I imagine many other people don't, you know, and and. Uh, um, so uh, it, it just it was reassuring on some level um, that uh, again this is being looked at now rather than like five years from now. So to to your point, Hercules, uh, this is Mark. Um, you know, even yeah, though I have essentially I have essentially gig workers, um, right. everyone gets. I use a real payroll service, and um, I pay. Uh, you know, all of my people get paid with a regular paycheck. Um, even though it may be intermittent and we take out taxes and social security and all that sort of stuff, because as an employer, I don't want to get caught in some, you know, internal revenue service audit. And now I'm paying back taxes and all this stuff. It's just easier to do the right thing uh, with the employees. And I think, um, and I, and I think that more companies will be, you know, will be making that choice or they're going to be forced into doing it. I, I agree. And you're an honorable man. You're a man of your word. You're a man of principle, but not everybody is. Uh, so, <laughs> well, look, don't, don't, don't give me too much credit for that. I, you know, I think it's the right business decision, the right tax decision. It just, it's the smarter move long-term. And you're a wise man too, in practical ways. Thank you. Mark. <laughs> Christine? Oh, I have a very different view of the future. Um, okay. The gig economy is going towards a, a bifurcation of your very intelligent, very skilled workers who will be on a gig economy, but your lower end, I believe firmly, anybody who can work in a gig economy will be replaced by automation. You already see it with um, SAT tutors and whatever you go to the Khan Academy now to learn um, statistical analysis instead of say going to a teacher who might come in part time to teach it um, we're going to have electric self-driving cars at some point there go all your Lyft drivers as, as things are as a gig service is identified it'll work for a couple years the gig Workers will not identify what is a fair wage. They'll get underpaid, and they'll be replaced by automation. Um, What I hope will happen is that they will move to uh, creating artistic things, handcrafts. Whether there will be a demand for that in the future, I don't know, but I think that's the only way you're going to keep people employed. You may end up with a culture where 40% of the people play video games all day. And that's how we keep them occupied and amused. I, I can see uh, part of that uh, as well. And in fact, uh, one of our panelists, he's not here with us uh, today, 
uh, is uh, Bill Waitman. Uh, I've known about Bill for years. Uh, he worked uh, very heavily with uh, the Department of Labor um, and the Departments of Education, uh, and he worked on collecting data and resources uh, uh, for the, like, the Dictionary of Occupational Titles, the Occupational Outlook Handbook, then, and so on. Uh, so he'll be uh, joining us, but he sees that we're going to get blindsided uh, by AI uh, in uh, 2020, which is not that far away. So uh, he's been like it's a, uh, yeah, yeah. You look he's around now. Really impacting us. And uh, yeah. right now he's a voice in the wilderness, but uh, we're trying to start looking at that now and, and trying to anticipate. And that'll be the subject of future shows, by the way. What can our response possibly be? What can we possibly do? And if we could find something, let's, let's do it. Because uh, I, see the, I see everything changing fast. Even the supermarkets, um, they, they're doing away with the, the cashiers. Now you kind of check yourself out in, uh, in department stores. So I don't see that trend uh, uh, diminishing. I see it accelerating, as do you. Well, if, well, you, I'm if, much if I can... Go ahead. I'm sorry, Mark. I'm much no, more please. concerned about the AP course that is taught once now to save money in one classroom and is broadcast to every other classroom in the state. At the moment, it's only broadcast to the other classrooms in the county. But mm-hmm. at some point, you will only have a subject taught one way, and there will be no con- conflicting views as you come up through the ranks of, of high school. And everybody going to college will have been taught exactly the same way, which is a problem. That's scary. Yeah, that would be scary. We're there. In that We're respect, there. you know, there is a great deal the teacher does in terms of examples or, you know, that person I'm touched that helps a lot of students. Well, AP courses are now taught generally by in one school and other kids. And, and in some respects, good. If you're taking AP American Indian history, there may not be the demand in your school, but you can get 20 kids across 40 schools that might be interested in that. But that course really only has to be taught once. Learning is a process. It's not just a swallowing and a regurgitating of uh, information. Uh, When I was in Pennsylvania, I was teaching in uh, college and uh, um, toward the end of uh, that particular part of my life, um, I would be teaching in one place, but I'd be handling five classrooms throughout Pennsylvania. Uh, so I'd have like a, uh, a mic thing and earphones and had computer screens and I had to watch them while I was uh, instructing and then click buttons uh, uh, imagine how difficult it was for me. I have a difficult time with things like that, but I'd have to pay attention Oi. to what they're asking in different classes. And so as I was teaching five classes at once and uh, they were only paying me and they weren't paying me any more as a teacher to teach five classes than one. So uh, uh, I'm not surprised that this process continues. So uh, Hercules, if I could make a point to follow up with sure. uh, Christine, um, you know, t- two days ago, uh, you know, I read and uh, saw information about McDonald's uh, rolling out new technology for their drive-in lanes where it will be completely uh, basically automated and doing away with the workers who would typically take oh. your order. And then yesterday, literally the day afterwards, 
McDonald's came out and announced that they're no longer going to put up any legal or lobbying fights for the $15 minimum wage that's, uh, you know, rolling out across the country. And, you know, the, the two are completely connected. It's because yeah. as they eliminate, as they use more AI and more technology, they're not going to need those workers. So paying, you know, the remaining work is $15 an hour uh, is simply a no brainer for them. And that's, you know, that's, that, you know, at some point, everyone will wind up going to a Starbucks, you know, Starbucks is big on sure. We'll pay $15 an hour and offer healthcare benefits at some point in the very near future, almost all of Starbucks's activities inside the store will be automated. Yes. See, the catch about all this automation is that one, it's not, it's not unprecedented. You know, we used to have like a thousand people to like kill like farms, you know, but then, Sure. Things, then we had factories, you know, and we had uh-huh. automation on the farms with um, different things there. The problem is now the nature of the economy in which this is happening, where there isn't one the labor law to protect the people going into better positions, for example, in terms of more stable uh, corporations or this great competition among small businesses like the type that Mark is facing for unfortunately and then there's not really like the infrastructure that would support people trying to you know create new industries the way new industries were created in the past that sprung up and gave uh, people lots of jobs you know that's really the problem unfortunately that we're facing here on some level oh most certainly so um, would you guys like to stay on this topic since uh, everyone seems uh, passionate uh, about it, or would you like to go to healthcare and return to it? I'm fine either way, whichever you'd like. Well, I like this topic. It seems, I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Dan, how about you? Well, you know, you're the host here. No, I suppose the natural idea of healthcare. Um, uh huh. You know, I guess the, the idea was the problem that we're talking about benefits and private uh, employers not providing benefits. I think Mark hinted at the idea of single payer. I think that might be yeah. an interesting direction to move into, for example, especially since we saw with the Affordable Care Act the complete implementation of a pure market-based uh, solution to health insurance, and we still see a lot of problems with that. Okay. Inadequate so for our country. There, there are well, I'd like to. Here. So, uh, go ahead, Christine. I just thought, if we're going to go to healthcare, I've got a slightly different view, chamber of commerce type of view. But, any and that's business that wants to, any business that wants to compete overseas, is competing with a company that does not have to pay healthcare, and that can be ten to twenty percent of a company's cost. We are strangling ourselves by trying to concentrate our health care being paid for by businesses. Okay. Um, Mark? Yeah, so I, so you know, I, I agree with that. I, I, I think if we were creating a brand-new health care you know, system today, uh, we wouldn't come up with this highly convoluted, chaotic <laughs> system of Certainly. lobbyists and insurance companies and all this crazy stuff, we would basically, you know, if 100 of us were stuck on an island, we'd all say, okay, 
everybody has to put, uh, you know, uh, a pineapple a week aside for the two for the for the doc for the two doctors we have on the island, so the doctors can focus on, uh, you know, fixing our broken legs, and while the rest of us are tending the field and building huts to live in and stuff like that. Um, so my view is, biz, you know, why does the company I work for have anything to do with my health care? Okay, and, and, I can and answer that. You, well, <laughs> well, they shouldn't have. They shouldn't have anything to you know do with my health care. You know where that came from? Right, right, right. So, you know, you, I'm a believer in a, in a Medicaid, uh, Medicare for all system. Instead of starting when you're 65 or 67, it should start when you're born. And everyone pays tax into it, just like Social Security tax, so that if you're employed, you know, you pay your 6% or your 4%. And your employer pays the 4% share of it, you know, whatever it is. And then you have your health care. If you become unemployed, well, while you're unemployed, you have no income. But you're still, since you're on Medicare, you still have access to the health care system. And then when you find your new gig or your new career, you start paying the tax again. And uh, I, I think that's a system that is inherently more fair. We still have. Uh, you know, you still have private doctors, you still have private hospitals. It's just that the, the, the government would be administering the dollars. And by the way, with the insurance companies administering the dollars, uh, 18% of every healthcare dollar, you know, goes to administration. Uh, yes. Medicare is Medicare is one of the things the federal government actually does right. The administrative cost is 4%. So we're already doing it. We're doing it well. We should just expand it. Do more. Do more of the things we're doing well at, and less of what we're doing poorly at, with this, which is the whole health insurance industry. Very well said, and uh, I'm sold on that. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> You're welcome, Christine. You had yeah, that was the last this year. Good point. I, I just wanted to go over the historic how healthcare developed. It used to be uh-huh. that you tithe to the church. And the church was responsible for, of course, your spiritual welfare, but they also mm-hmm. took care of your physical welfare. If the breadwinner died, they took care of the widows and orphans. They took care of the aged. Your tithing, and everybody tithed, took care of your health care and senior benefits. World War, I, I don't know if it was World War One or World, World War Two. there was a um, wage freeze. And of course, people wanted to attract. It was Second World War. People wanted to attract good workers. The only thing they were allowed to offer them was better health benefits, because that was outside of the wage freeze. This wasn't some well thought out. Let's go and make the businesses pay for our health care. It was in reaction to regulation of something totally different. For whatever that's worth. I did not know that. Thank you. if you you know the cost of health care is also a function of the health care that has become available as time has progressed you know if you had if you had smallpox uh, or appendicitis in 1750 you know you were more likely than not the guest of honor at a funeral right uh, today we <laughs> have and, and so there was it. no cost to your health care other than the burial all right Whereas today now, you know, we, we, the appendix comes out, you have a hospital that has bricks and you have to pay the rent 
and, uh, you know, smallpox you have vaccines for. And so we've got services that previous, that historically for 99% of humanity's time on Earth haven't existed. And so you're right, post-World War II, as technology moved very rapidly, we're like, oh, now we have all these new things to pay for. Well, we need a, we need a new system of paying for it rather than what we did at the end of World War II. Very true. Um, Dan, you you have something to add to that, I'm sure. Um, no, I think those were uh, very good points that were uh, made. Um, that uh, the system is sort of like a piecemeal thing uh, developed, and there isn't a great foresight. I thought Christine made a great point that it is a big burden for businesses to have to carry that they don't do uh, very efficiently, uh, and that Medicare is far more efficient of the system, and it would free up a lot of capital, for example, that businesses invest elsewhere, and that even when you have the state governments, you know, you have uh, the pension and the health, well, the health care, especially for the workers, is such like a contentious issue now, you know, and it's something that really shouldn't be, you know, if we had a Medicare for all system, and this is a system that works fairly well, you know, in the rest of the industrialized world, you know, the countries that one would, would consider has a standard of living comparable to ourselves. So I think Mark made a great point that the idea is we can have a system of an expanded Medicare for all, but still keep the things that we like in terms of private hospitals, private doctors, for example. Awesome. Uh, my next question is, uh, of course, uh, and uh, Mark and I have discussed this uh, at great length uh, over uh, um, many shows. Um, what can we do about that um, to help things move in the direction they need to move? What type of actions can we take? Um, what type of activities should be getting involved in and promoting? And we'll start with Christine this time because uh, uh, this way she's not third on the list. I knew you would ask for me first on the healthcare, which I'm not nearly as. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Conversant with. <laughs> and, and Dan said before I'm the host, but but yes, I'm a Greek host though, and you're my guest, so you might be gods in disguise. So you know, there's a whole Greek thing happening. So of course, I'm going to want to know which direction you'd like to go, and this is a journey we're taking together. No, I definitely like the the Medicare for all. I like that combined with an optional private um, supplemental insurance system. So the some insurance companies can still stay employed. People can get the more extreme medicine if that's what they want and they can afford to pay for it. Um, but I think a basic standard of health care for all is a good thing. It's helpful when people don't have gout and are able to go out and work instead of sitting at home in uh, agony. Most certainly so, and I'm in agreement. Mark? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm no fan of gout, I can assure you on that, so I agree with Christine there. Uh, you know, it's, it's a good question. You know, uh, there are people in health insurance companies who are administering um, – who are administering and moving the money around uh, and negotiating with healthcare providers. And those sort of jobs would still be at that, that work would still have to get done. You know, there, there, it would be very disruptive though. 
Um, you know, there's a lot of forces against a single payer system because it changes the dynamics of where the dollars flow. And, right. um, you know, that's, that's a key component. And I'm not sure anyone has figured out what a single payer system in the United States would do to the existing health insurance companies. But, you know, if, if I had the magic wand to say, let's do it, you know, I would, I would think rolling something out, starting with smaller states on a state-by-state level um, would be a way to kind of, you know, work out all the kinks and the issues and the roadblocks uh, that would have to be worked out. Because it would take time. You know, it's, it's 310 million people in the United States. You can't roll out something like um, overnight. Right. But it, it does need to be rolled out, and we do need to be uh, moving in that direction, if, if nothing else. Right. And you know what? Obamacare, uh, you know, Obamacare has its pluses and minuses, its supporters, its detractors. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, Obamacare was was what was done because it was politically – that's what was politically possible at the time – and, and I think whatever Obamacare may or may not morph into, you know, it's kind of the beginning of a single-payer system. And, you know, I'm not a futurist. I don't know whether it's coming in a year or 10 years or 20 years, but it will happen eventually. Thank you very much, Mark. Dan? So there's a number of things uh, we could do uh, to speed this up. You know, it's great. So we have a good conversation here and that, you know, people like Christine, you know, understand this, you know, wouldn't, uh, you know, that's great. You know, we need to spread the word that way. Um, in the immediate political sense, you know, people are pushing uh, for Congress to uh, support a Medicare for all bill. And, you know, uh, you know, the congressman from uh, central New Jersey, Frank Pallone is chairman of the committee that uh, has jurisdiction over that. So people are pushing him uh, in that way. So that's one way to uh, bring him forward. Uh, you know, there's also, you know, the presidential election next year. So a number of candidates are supporting it. I believe even our own Cory Booker, among others. So it is certainly a re- relevant issue that one uh, should uh, be discussing uh, with one's friends, you know, because this isn't some academic issue that only affects a few people. It is you know, a large-scale issue you know, that affects us all. So, you know, it's something that, like civil rights in the 50s, 1950 might have seemed pie in the sky, but by 1959, it was a matter of time and how. So I think it's more like that. Okay, thank you very much. Um, now, I am trying to do what I can do. I, th- I think if everybody did what they can do with uh, what they know and who they are and how they are and what they have at hand, uh, I think a, a lot more would get uh, accomplished. So what I'm trying to do um, with uh, this, uh, these podcasts is I'm trying to focus them and, and modify them so that uh, we can look at things from different uh, perspectives and we can uh, share information and, and think of ways to uh, solve problems. So I will be moving in the direction of having these type of informational forums. Do you think this is an effective way of sharing ideas? I'll go with Christine again. Hello, Christine? 
Sorry, it helps if you take off the mute. Um, oh, sorry. I, I think I think there's a lot of misinformation. I think there's a lot of fear of for from the highest levels on doctors. What happens when you have uh, several people that are using an expensive piece of equipment that maybe doesn't have full utilization or pieces of equipment that doesn't have full utilization in one area? Mm-hmm. What's going to happen with those when there's a single-payer system and there's much more leverage to stop um, excess disciplines? Um, I think you have to address some of those concerns. I'm not sure how podcasts on saying, oh, this is good. I mean, yes, the information is good for everyone. I think there has to be more workshops on exactly how it might play out here. Some more strategic thinking about it. That we can do. Uh, we're starting the career uh, um, center at the Cresco Public We can start other uh, centers uh, as well. Uh, I know the Rotary does an excellent job of bringing in uh, speakers. The Chamber of Commerce does an excellent job of uh, bringing in speakers. So um, I, I think that, you know, uh, uh, if we have places where people can give the workshops, uh, there are certainly plenty of people who are looking to do uh, uh, workshops uh, um, even freely to help communication and to uh, disseminate information. So um, th- th- that is excellent, and uh, I guess that will percolate inside my head <laughs> for a bit. But I can certainly <laughs> invite doctors to these forums. Uh, my current journeys are taking me in those uh, circles again, and I'm trying to uh, pay attention to their issues as well as uh, um, th- those of others. So I, I can certainly invite doctors to future uh, forums where we discuss this and see what their perspectives happen to be. And maybe that will inspire us uh, to think in different ways. Yeah, because that's another problem that I, I definitely see with the health care um, improvements that need to be made. I mean, we definitely have certain facilities, procedures that are available in some places and not others. Sometimes it's a choice of the local state where they're cutting back on, say, women's health care, which is a whole other issue. But sometimes it's just doctors prefer to live in certain areas. It's an issue. Okay, thank you. Mark? Well, right, just going backwards with some of the 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 topics Christine brought up, she's 100% right, right? Some mm-hmm. you know, doctors want to live in Manhattan. They, they want to live outside of the Presidio in San Francisco. They want to live in Chicago, um, you know, in cities. And, you know, if you're in Topeka, Kansas, you could wind up in the middle of a healthcare desert. And, uh, you know, I think as a society, uh, we have to look at, well, what are the incentives for, for getting young doctors to move to Topeka, um, you know, is it they have an increased salary or, you know, maybe they do something like that for three to five years, their residency, uh, after their residency, and then they get a prime, you know, position at a major medical facility somewhere else in the United States. So there's, there's ways of over overcoming all those issues. Um, I have a little bit less of a fear about systems being overused because uh, the people that are sick tonight in the United States 
and that, you know, break their arm or fall down the steps tonight, um, regardless of whether they have health insurance or not, they're going to the hospital. And yes. so the system is already serving all these people, uh, but you have uh, uneven uh, payment system. I, I have health insurance, so if I break my leg tonight, maybe it's going to cost, let's say, uh, $2,000 for me to get my leg fixed that the insurance company will get billed. But Hercules, let's say you don't have health insurance and you show up at the emergency room, they may tell you it's $5,000. Yes. And you, know, and, and you either have it or you don't have it, and then that is a whole other series of events that then start to take over. Um, so I think the people that are um, um, that overuse the health care system now are already overusing it. And they would continue to. And the people that only engage with the healthcare system when they really need to, you know, I'm not going to start going to the hospital more if my cost of my insurance goes down. It's you know that's not human nature. Right. Okay. Thank you very much, Dan. Yeah, I think education of these issues is uh, really good. Uh, I think the podcast is a great, uh, innovative way to do so. Uh, and I certainly think there has to be more education on the issue because a lot of times when you say Medicare for all or a system like that, people want, they like to bring up the worst aspects of other systems, for example, that, for example, seem um, uh, less ideal, for example, systems, you know, the British system and the Canadian system aren't exactly perfect, for example. Uh, in many ways. So education is really important in this issue and kind of understanding like the nature of how difficult healthcare reform in this country is that the reforms that Obama was trying to implement have been, had been uh, the goal actually of Harry Truman in 1949, Bill Clinton in 1993 for example, so it really is that difficult. So that's the kind of the catch that when there is the historical opportunity to do so, this is going to be a major fight and ideally uh, will be won by the good people. Thank you very much. And uh, as we talk about this, I, I become aware of complexities that uh, uh, I didn't see before. So this is this is way more complicated an issue than I thought. And I thought it was complicated to begin with, but uh, there are so many layers to it uh, uh, that it's kind of uh, uh, formidable. But we need to move uh, forward in this direction, so uh, onwards. Um, the other question On I was going to ask is, excuse me? Um, excuse me, Chris. Um, on this, where podcasts are really helpful, I know I mm-hmm. mentioned women's health care, which yes. everyone knows about, but people might not be aware that across the country, unlike, say, a homogeneous place like, say, England or Finland, we have very different ideas of what is an acceptable health treatment for mental disorders or even yes. something like um, assault. If you're raped in the Midwest, your chances of finding a therapist are much, much, much lower than on the coast. It's just not a value. 
That, that's very true. One of the shows we currently have in development addresses uh, uh, those issues, the, the issues of mental health and uh, um, basically inequities uh, uh, in uh, the treatment uh, based on gender and race and other such uh, issues. Um, no, but and, it's a community uh, value. They just do not think that talking to people is a useful treatment. Right. So they don't support the community. They don't support that kind of doctor. Go ahead. So, no, it's not even that the doctor isn't there. Just if the doctor were there, he's not going to have enough patients because they don't think it's valuable. And, and that's very frustrating. Uh, again, as, as everyone knows, I'm Greek, and uh, I got involved with uh, – um, mental health and working as a therapist like pretty early on in the 80s. And back then in the 80s, being Greek and being in the field of uh, uh, mental health was a big asset because a lot of places wanted to open up treatment centers uh, in Astoria and other Greek areas. Uh, but Greeks generally at the time, uh, despite organizations like uh, GAPSI, the Greek American Behavioral Sciences Institute, didn't believe in mental health. They believed that if you got married or if you went to Greece, everything would be okay. <laughs> any, any other discussion about mental health were meaningless. It, it did not mean anything. The same way in Greece, if you told them Americans didn't believe in the evil eye, uh, they would tell you that Americans are spiritually blind or stupid. And that was, that was how they uh, interpreted that. And everything there medically, uh, you would go to the doctor to get prescriptions for being hexed with the evil eye. So I, I understand that those beliefs are very uh, entrenched and uh, uh, frustrating and disempowering. And, and yeah, we, we have to find some way of addressing those uh, as well. Like the anti-vaxxer movement that we have here, uh, diseases that we thought we had under control are breaking out, you know, because of people's uh, uh, beliefs, which uh, don't reflect uh, uh, the reality of the majority of us. But that's a great point. Well, just to, to go ahead, Mark. To, to, to make a to make a point, I have to make a point on the vaccines. Uh, the people's beliefs are disconnected from the reality of the science. Um, right. And, and that's the real that's the real that's the real challenge there. It's not it's not two sets of people with two different varied belief systems. It's a group of a small group of people completely denying every aspect of the statistics of the science behind vaccinations. And how, how would you address that? Uh, um, and that's a complicated issue, too, because uh, there are certain uh, uh, liberties that people have based on their beliefs in, in this country. So, well, uh, so where do you draw the line between it, it's a danger to society as opposed to I'm violating uh, uh, your right to believe what you want to believe? Right. No, I, right. You know, the whole your rights stop at the tip of my nose sort of thing. But I'll, I'll give you, a, you know, I feel very strongly about this. One of my grandfathers was one of seven children. Now we're talking, you know, the 1910 sort of period of time. Uh-huh. Uh, one of seven children, three of whom died uh, as children from childhood diseases that we all have vaccines for now. And I, I don't I, I, I think it's. After we've, we've cured these diseases, measles went away, and now it's making mm-hmm. a resurgence because people confuse science with their feelings. And yeah. you could have all the feelings you, you could have all the feelings you want. 
that, you know, the earth is flat uh, and you're upset because I think it's round. Uh, well, that doesn't mean the earth is flat. That just means you have feelings that are misguided. And I think the vaccination thing is a real problem. And it's not a civil liberties issue because you don't have a right or I don't have a right to infect other children, expose them to diseases they can die from because I believe in whatever that my whatever my personal belief is that I'm an anti-vaccination person, you know, then, mm-hmm. and I think from a, from a governing perspective, the children aren't vaccinated uh, unless a child is actually allergic to vaccines. They simply shouldn't be allowed in school. And, you know, when you have, if you have 97 or so, whatever the herd immunity number is, 97% of the children are vaccinated the other 3% are protected by the herd immunity, you know, if they're allergic uh-huh. to vaccines. But I don't believe there should be any exemption for religion, philosophy, the parents' emotional state of mind, or, or anything. So that's my view. Thank you. And now we have the subjects of a whole other show because this is right. something that really bears uh, examination <laughs> and, and, and thought. Um, Dan? Uh, yeah, you know, these are, be- are uh, serious issues. Uh, they're really outside of my expertise on labor. Um, but, you know, it is um, you know, it is important for everybody to get um, vaccinations. You know, it's quite unfortunate that way that people are kind of saying, oh, the vaccines are the cause of these issues that we don't really uh, understand. For example, autism that are either being being diagnosed in greater numbers or is becoming more prevalent one way or another. So it's very unfortunate that medicine in some ways is very primitive compared to other areas of, you know, human uh, society, you know, religion, philosophy, politics seems a lot more developed when you look at it. Very, very true. But, and it does impact unemployment though. What if somebody can't work uh, Saturdays? Uh, because well, then uh, the that's the catch. Then. Yeah, and and again, where do you draw the line uh, between uh, what's actually impacts society and what's dangerous uh, uh, for the self and for other uh, people? Um, yeah, it, it, it's going to take a long, long time to um, sort through that. And the logic, it doesn't. Dep- we don't even really have the same standard of logic. Like last time, I went to Limnos. Uh, uh, which is the island of my ancestry, and I was wandering around the mountains because I, I love to walk. Um, people were looking at me, and they didn't think I could understand them because I don't look like a typical uh, Greek. And uh, they were wondering if I was a wizard. And the reason they were wondering if I was a wizard was because I had a beard and I didn't appear to be a priest. And therefore, I had to be a <laughs> wizard. That's what they concluded. <laughs> and that was their logic, and those were their criteria for drawing those uh, conclusions. So uh, in their worldview, I was a, a wandering you know, wizard. That wasn't what was going on in my head. Uh, but uh, um, these type of issues with vaccinations and with uh, holy days and things like that, uh, um, they're very deeply held, and they're difficult to shake. Um, you know, um, and how can you argue with Americans don't believe this because they're stupid? You know, how do you argue with that? Or they're spiritually blind. So it's the same type of thing. And I, too, believe that uh, uh, if something has been eradicated, we should not allow it to come back because 
uh, we should protect society. Um, but making that happen brings up all sorts of other related uh, issues that uh, you know, really need to be looked at. And with some of them, imposing a governmental will um, you know, might not be the wisest thing to do. So it's, it's not an easy uh, uh, solution. Well, Hercules, if I could interject for a second, sure. you know the the topic of the topic of uh, people people celebrating different religious holidays. Um, I I think it. You know, of course, I I completely believe if a person celebrates a particular religious holiday, uh, they should observe that religious holiday. If they choose not to work on Saturday. Um, I'm Catholic. I never work on Good Friday. I never work on Easter. No matter what mm-hmm. the consequences are, I'm not working those two days. Um, right. and, and so I respect people of other religions who have the same viewpoint. Um, and, you know, businesses should, as a business owner, if an employee comes to me and says, uh, uh, this is my particular holiday, can I have the day off? I always say yes. Because it keeps mm-hmm. peace in the realm, and I say that for I don't, uh, you know, businesses should not discriminate of one holiday from another holiday, and you know, with reasonable accommodations. Uh, so I see that as a very different issue because if you take a different holiday off than I do, your day off or and your observance doesn't affect me or my observance. Whereas the right. vaccination issue can affect human beings around you. So your personal choices in the vaccine situation, unlike the religious situation, uh, can have a physical effect on other people's health. Very good points. And and working in a gig economy uh, gives some people the flexibility to, you know, observe certain things that they need to observe uh, at certain times of day, at certain times of year and uh, and so forth. So that that would be, I guess, one of the pluses of the gig economy as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, a slight. Go ahead, sorry. Um, a slight variation on that. Um, my daughter celebrates the Jewish holidays, not on necessarily on the Jewish calendar, but when my mother-in-law celebrates them. So she may be off on a totally different day than anyone else in the organization. And to the, this company's credit, they're fine with that. Um, awesome. It does, however, I or at least I wonder, how does that impact your productivity when everyone's taking off random holidays. Um, at least in the old style, everybody knew you were there pretty much from Monday through Friday um, until unless you were off for two weeks on your vacation. Um, is this bringing down the whole company or is, are we now just working through the Saturdays on our cell phones and it doesn't really matter? Those are great questions, and again, the, the topic of another uh, discussion, because we only have around uh, um, less than 10 minutes, uh, but that's something I definitely want to explore. How do you guys feel about that? Yes, absolutely. Awesome. Dan? Um, you know, like, there's always, I think that employers can be uh, flexible that way for the way, like, people observe holidays. You know, there's always ways to move around, you know, for people's uh, beliefs, you know, and we live in a very 
uh, diverse uh, society, you know, believe religiously in that respect. So it's not that hard uh, for people to do. And, you know, that, I suppose that is one of the pluses of the gig economy in theory. You know, if you want to go to, for example, for for the uh, New Year in uh, Judaism, Rosh Hashanah, you know, it's two days officially you're supposed to be in synagogue uh, there praying. So you can take off those two days and you don't have perhaps the issues you would have in a more traditional uh, environment. So Mm -hmm. that is one of the benefits in theory, but unfortunately it comes with far more cons uh, right now, I believe. Okay, thank you very much. And uh, I I do believe very strongly in the health uh, um, issues that uh, we touched upon today and uh, during other conversations. So uh, what I've done is I've increased the amount of shows that deal with uh, uh, wellness, and I'll be approaching it from several different perspectives uh, to see what works best and then do what's most uh, effective. But uh, we will have much more time each month to investigate that part of this uh, uh, puzzle and uh, um, I believe I'm sending schedules around. Uh, I think I've, you guys have all gotten the new schedules. Um, so yes. uh, anything that says optimal wellness on it, um, what do you call it? That, that's a potential show to discuss this. So we could discuss this uh, very often. And uh, I think next time, um, if we can look to, uh, like, for instance, as we explore the actions that can be taken and the ramifications of these actions, uh, everyone knows to call your representatives, you know, to make your voice heard in your community in any way that you can make it uh, heard. Uh, I don't really know how effective uh, the online uh, petitions are, but if they're effective, then I'd love to start introducing them into what we're doing, maybe on Facebook, maybe on a website or or something. How effective do you feel that is? Like if we're discussing something and we're in agreement on the topic uh, to, to give people uh, resources so that they can uh, call the representatives or uh, write a letter, or if it's effective, uh, um, take one of the online polls. Uh, what is your, what are your thoughts on that, Christine? I used to work or do the IT for a politician and any kind of, uh, st- signing a standard postcard, online polls, or basically said, okay, there were this many number, people responded this way, and they were, it was immediately forgotten. The things that were discussed, talked about, and thought to be credible were handwritten notes on yellow paper. Um, if they did it with a Sharpie where it looked like they had just grabbed a paper in the ire of the moment, um, they figured that was when they had emotionally hit somebody, and that was a um, significant reaction from their constituents. So if you can get people that's to write handwritten notes, um, that's probably your most valuable thing to do. Better than even a phone call. Oh, yeah. Okay. Thank you. I, I did not know that. Mark? So uh, as... As an, as an elected person, um, I will say, having witnessed this amongst my colleagues, myself, and people in higher office, when individuals contact an elected person or show up in person at some sort of event or forum or send us an email or, like Christine said, a handwritten note, that has um, an effect 
that is far greater than just the one individual itself. Um, because uh, elected, elected folks don't really get to see the vast majority of the people they represent. When you have council meetings, state assembly meetings, it's, it's single-digit numbers, sometimes double-digit numbers of people who are there. And the people who show up and have their voices heard, you know, the people who show up make the rules. It's that simple. So if we have a council meeting or you go to a, a congressional town hall and all the people there are telling the congressman or the council people that the number one priority is potholes and fix the roads, and that elected official keeps hearing that every time they show up somewhere and in emails, they're going to start making voting decisions based on how do we fix the roads quickly so people can stop yelling at me. Um, so, you know, the, I mean, again, it's, it's human nature. If you, I'm a big believer in reach out to your representatives, like Christine said, with a handwritten note, call them, show up at their office door, whatever you want to do, it has an effect. Um, and, uh, you know, that's we have uh, uh, the new congresswoman from Western New Jersey, Mikey Sherrill. She got elected in a Democrat in an overwhelming Republican district because we were showing up at the previous congressman's office doing very peaceful protesting, getting people aware of what's going on by that personal touch. And it had an effect. And a very small handful of people had a huge effect on the outcome of an election. And uh, so reach out to your elected representatives. It means a lot more than most people really believe it means. Thank you very much, Mark. Dan? Yes, I think I have a synthesis view whereby showing up uh, is like the most effective uh, to speak to uh, your representatives in person. You know, if you can bring other people uh, to do so, it's even better. If they know that person really well, it's even better. You know, a handwritten note then is good. It's not handwritten, typed, not typed email. So. Thank you very much. Uh, you guys are awesome. I'm greatly honored that you're here, and uh, you've all given me a lot to uh, think about and digest, and that'll determine uh, the direction of uh, future shows. Uh, since we're approaching uh, the end of our journey together today, are there any words of wisdom uh, you would like to offer to our audience who, are, who find themselves uh, in dealing with the realities of uh, a gig economy that's not going away? Christine? Education and make sure you are the best at whatever you're doing. That's really how you're going to succeed. And think about if you're going to go into a gig economy, think about all the aspects of it. People who are not taking into account their wear and tear on their, their car, when they look at how much money they're making and suddenly have to pay for new tires much, much earlier than they thought they did, mm-hmm. are not doing themselves a service. They need to educate themselves and be the best at their job that they can. Thank you very much, Christine. Mark? So I, I, I agree with Christine. It's all about educating themselves, uh, keeping update with the technology, the service, whatever they might be doing. But I think they also have to protect their own rights. And, um, you, know, uh, you know, I believe there are 
uh, some, you know, beginnings of organizations, union organizations that are looking to protect uh, the rights of uh, gig workers. And I think the folks who are in the gig economy have to start pursuing that um, because, uh, you know, individually that Uber driver, that uh, person writing code in their apartment, uh, you know, uh, from midnight to 8 a.m., they don't have the advantages of of a group of people around them and an organization that can seek them out. And those gig economy folks need to start seeking out uh, organizations that will help protect their, their, you know, their financial rights, their tax rights, that sort of thing. Um, uh, you know, because that's going to be the future. Thank you, Mark. And that is what uh, Dan is trying to do, by the way, with the American Workforce yep. Association. Uh, Dan. <laughs> yeah, Mike, you kind of took uh, away my point there, uh, even though you've oh, made sorry. it very well that <laughs> that workers do need to understand the economy. They do need to work together, join together to understand these issues, to fight back on what are the greatest injustices of them, for example. So thriving in this type of economy is, of course, education. It is honing your skills and keeping your skills um, up to date and understanding the nature of your field, where it's going, and networking with people. And then you know, defending yourself when there is an injustice, when if you are being micromanaged as a 1099 worker, then you're misclassified, and that's a legal case. For example, if it's the core function of a business, then you're misclassified, and then there's a legal case. So these are issues that my organization, the American Workforce Association, AWA, is trying to fight. So remember, you're not alone. Thank you very much. That was very powerfully said. And uh, what you said about the micromanagement, uh, that was one of the things that they were looking at. You know, how much freedom did I have? And you know, I pretty much showed that, you know, basically I'm being paid to do something. Uh, so I have to do it and I have to do it uh, to the best of uh, my ability to do. But no one's watching over me. No one's controlling me. That, you know, basically it's, a, it's just a gig, uh, one of many that I pick up uh, hither and yon as I build my own business. Thanks to all of you. This has been a phenomenal conversation. I'm looking forward to continuing it. Uh, I must uh, note that I'll be giving a presentation on the uh, uh, Career Center at the next uh, Tenafly Chamber of Commerce meeting on Wednesday the 3rd of uh, 2019. And uh, we're launching the Career Center on Thursday, the April 4th. And uh, Dan will be our first uh, speaker. So uh, thanks to everybody for joining us. Thanks uh, to all our panelists. Uh, uh, This was an awesome conversation, and I look forward to our next one. Thank you, Hercules. Thank you, Hercules. Pleasure. Thank you, Hercules. Good night. Good night, and thanks to our audience for tuning in. Uh, Please contact me if there's anything else that uh, concerns you or that you're curious about, and we will develop uh, um, panels like this to uh, uh, discuss and explore Everyone, thank you and many blessings. This is uh, Hercules and my wonderful panel, Christine Evron, Mark Sinna, and Dan Uloa, uh, wishing you well and signing off. Thanks for listening to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network. Join us 
seven nights a week for exciting programming covering a variety of expressions of faith. And remember, all manifestations of the divine are equally valid.